This is the Garden Path Podcast. Hello, gardeners. I'm your host, Misty Little. This will be my last episode for this season, which was a very long season that I started in March of 2020 when the pandemic began, a few months after I had stopped the podcast, which I thought was going to last much longer than three months. Instead, it morphed into months and months of solo episodes that renewed my interest in the podcast and in gardening. And I'm still very interested in the podcast, but I need a little bit of a break. So I'm taking the summer off to record some solo episodes behind the scenes and to get some more guest interviews lined up to release next fall. My guest for today is Kim Ironman, author of the new book, The Pollinator Victory Garden. And if you've been listening to podcasts for a few years, you've probably seen her eco-beneficial podcast. Kim is an environmental horticulturist and ecological landscape designer specializing in native plants and based in New York. Our conversation spans a wide range of topics regarding pollinators, but I hope the takeaway is that you don't need acres of landscape to become more pollinator friendly. All right, on to the episode with Kim. Well, yes, it's very nice to meet you, and I appreciate you uh, taking your time to uh, podcast. I know you're pretty busy. Well, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I got your book, and you know, it's right cool. up my alley, and it's perfect, and I loved it. So, <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, maybe we could just start, uh, maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit. I actually kind of, you know, taken a deep dive into a little bit of who you are, but I don't know all that much about you. Like, I don't know how long you've been a horticulturist, if if you came to this mm-hmm. ecological landscape design later in life and started off a typical horticulturist. How did all of that begin? Sure. So Kim Ironman, I'm the founder of Eco Beneficial based in Westchester County, New York, uh, very close to uh, to New York City. And um, I have been involved uh, with native plants and ecological design for, oh my gosh, probably about 20 years or so. And uh, yes, it was my second career. In fact, Um, I uh, was always kind of a nature geek and was very interested in plants from the get-go. So um, about 27 years ago, when my husband and I moved to Westchester County, New York, Um, I I didn't know a lot. So I started taking classes at uh, New York Botanical Garden and it was very close by. And uh, so here we are all these years later, I teach there. Yeah. (laughs) And I teach at Brooklyn Botanic Garden and the Native Plant Center in New York and Rutgers um, and a few other places occasionally. Okay. Well, so you must have seen a whole transformation of native plant gardening from, you know, 27 years ago to now. How has that evolved? Well, I'll tell you, things go in waves. And for many years, um, you know, I'd talk about what I did and people would say, oh, native plants, those weedy things on the side of the road, you know, and, and honestly... In all fairness, a lot of our native plants, the common names have weed in the name. So yeah. that doesn't really help. <laughs> yep. So um, it's been it's been interesting. Um, definitely, there's been a big change. I don't think there's enough of a change. Um, I think we have a long way to go. Um, if you look at the average neighborhood in America, um, you go house to house to house to house. Uh, you'd be lucky if you could find native plants in, in most cases. Uh, so I think, um, you know, the message about these evolutionary connections between wildlife and plants um, has escaped a lot of folks and, and simply because it's not something that we're taught about in schools. I think that's changing. I think, um, you know, uh, schools at the elementary level and, and so on are getting more sophisticated and oftentimes parents are the ones that are learning from their kids yep. about native <laughs> plants, which I think is hilarious whatever it takes. So um, yeah, there's been a a very um, significant uh, progression, but it's still, we're still not there. We still have ways to go. Um, If I could just get people to stop using pesticides, um, that would be a major accomplishment and uh, just let go of some of that big green desert, which is what I call the lawn. So, um, you know, there is progress to be made. (laughs) Absolutely. So you started Eco Beneficial, but mm-hmm. it also is so you're a landscape designer, but mm-hmm. you're also basically an outreach, you know, a garden educator in some yeah. manner. How do what do you do on a like what's your daily life like? Oh boy, that's that's a that's a tough question, day like today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like everything, everything. Um, so yeah, so like many folks um, who do this professionally, I do a lot of different things. Um, I do a lot of uh, teaching. 
Um, as I mentioned, for those institutions, New York Botanical Garden, Brooklyn Botanic Garden, Rutgers, the Native Plant Center here in New York, which is um, the first national affiliate of the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center, oh, wow. which is a really cool place. And um, so I do a lot of teaching, which I love, um, really enjoy it a lot. And then um, because I have so many classes that I teach, um, I typically take my longer classes and turn them into one hour presentations. I do a lot of public speaking and I, and I do that all over the country, especially now in the pandemic. Um, it's made it a lot easier <laughs> to reach people in faraway places. I, I was on my first international um, conference um, giving um, a webinar about um, pollinator gardening in the city um, for the um, the Nature of Cities Festival, which I think there were like 72 countries or something oh, represented. Wow. So, so that was pretty cool. Hearing from people in different countries during this webinar, you know, what their experiences were. It's fascinating. Fascinating. So um, do a lot of that. And then, um, you know, I, uh, I do design work for clients, uh, both um, uh, commercial clients, municipal clients, as well as homeowners, um, mostly homeowners, frankly. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I do a lot of horticultural consulting. In fact, I'm getting more and more work um, being a resource for landscape architects and uh, other landscape designers who perhaps don't um, know quite as much about native plants as, as I do. Um, and so that's really fun to do. And, you know, working on projects like right now, I'm working on a project for um, a university with uh, a landscape architect that's doing the design. And I'm, you know, I'm the advocate for native plantings instead of the same old, same old meatballs yeah. from, you know, the god awful things that we've been using for, <laughs> yeah. you know, the standard. I mean, if I see one more arborvitae, I'm going to have to kill myself. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Institutional <laughs> landscape. Um, so, um, and then of course, um, I, I do some writing, I'm not doing as much freelance writing as I used to, as I just don't have the time, but I uh, was approached by a publisher um, uh, not that long ago to write a book. And I had had this in my mind for quite a while and actually had a, a book proposal that was about 95% complete, um, just waiting, you know, for my courage to, to kick in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and got approached by a publisher and um, boom, it happened. So, you know, came up with this book called The Pollinator Victory Garden, Win the War on Pollinator Decline with Ecological Gardening. So that is, that is my book. And, you know, I've read in a way where I really wanted it to be approachable and understandable um, to a wide variety of people. I mean, if you're a brand new gardener, you're going to get something out of it. If you're pretty experienced, you're going to get something out of it. And even some professional folks will get something out of it. Um, and it has a lot of pretty pictures, which <laughs> makes, yes. it, makes it even nicer. I, uh, I was very fortunate. I collaborated with two um, of my associates, uh, professional associates who I'm very fond of and have great deal of respect for, um, Heather Holm, mm -hmm. who is also a designer and, a, and um, the author of several books, including the latest one on wasps, which I think is, I think is so fabulous that we have a book, a really good book on wasps, our native wasps. And uh, so she was one of my collaborating photographers on the book. And, uh, and then Carolyn Summers, who is also an author, she wrote a book on uh, uh, the flora of the Northeastern uh, United States, and also a landscape architect and um, a native plant advocate. So she was a collaborating photographer too. So between the three of us, we came up with enough pretty pictures to make the book um, appealing. Even if you don't read it, it still right, looks right. good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was really surprised because I was, you know, doing research about you and trying to figure out a little bit more. And I was surprised this was your first book because, you know, you've had this podcast for years. You've had yeah. your business for years and all these speaking engagements. It seemed like... I don't know. You would have had like a plethora of books and I'm glad you were working on one as I see right. you're already in that. Well, direction. I'm, I'm looking at the next. So with Perfect. any luck, we'll be seeing that, seeing that coming soon. Perfect. <laughs> so, you know, the pollinator victory garden, obviously you realize there was a need for a book of this type, but why is, is why this book and why now? Like what sure. is, you know, the reason for it? Right. Well, you know, um, some years ago, actually, I came up with this concept trying to kind of get groovy about the need to do something for pollinators, you know, and so I thought, 
Victory Gardens, you know, World War I, World War II, the, the, we had all these gardens for food defense. It was a way to get Americans engaged in the war efforts. And in World War II, there were about 20 million households in America that participated in uh, Victory Gardens. So, you know, it was kind of like a PR thing. I was trying to get people engaged because there just wasn't very much focus on the dramatic loss of pollinators. So I came up with this, this moniker, the Pollinator Victory Garden. And, um, you know, I've been talking about it for quite some time. I've got a tip sheet on it, the whole thing. And uh, now, of course, the book. So why now? Well, I, you know, there have been some, um, some efforts at making this an issue in the United States, but it really hasn't achieved the importance that it needs to. And, um, you know, there are some other really good books on this on the subject. Um, but I think, honestly, that um, the attention uh, started to be paid when we had colony collapse disorder mm -hmm. with honeybees. But, you know, most of America didn't even know or probably still doesn't know that honeybees are not native. Right. That they were introduced 400 years ago um, by colonists, along with things like peacocks and bull mastiffs, a lot of European yep. weeds. <laughs> and, um, and before uh, 1622, when honeybees came, pollination services on plants in North America, those services were provided by our native animal pollinators, including our native bees. Um, and we've got about 4,000 species of native bees, uh, we think, in North America, and about 10% of those aren't even yet named, which mm. is really quite extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, the plight of the honeybee is, is rather sad, but um, the plight of uh, our native bees was an untold story for quite a while. And I think finally we're starting to focus in on this, but there are other pollinators beside bees and um, they really don't get their due. You know, uh, I think most people think of, of bees and butterflies and that's kind of it, but, you know, we have uh, some pollinators that are wasps and some pollinators that are beetles and some pollinators that are moths and, uh, in the Southwest, even some pollinators that are bats and um, so on and so on. And, and so, and flies, you know, yeah. so not all of these things are pollinators, but we have a lot of really good pollinating flies. So we need to start thinking about what pollination means to us as the human race. And, you know, we can't live without pollination <laughs> provided by all these creatures. Um, I was uh, giving a, a presentation um, recently on Zoom and someone asked the question, well, can you hand pollinate your plants in your garden? <laughs> and I said, my God, that would be so tedious. I yeah. mean, and, you know, and if you're like a fruit or vegetable gardener, I mean, can you imagine hand pollinating all of your apples? I mean, you know, it's like it's, <laughs> forget about the $20 tomato is going to be the $40 apple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really not very realistic. Um, and so it, it really does take all of us to start paying attention to these things and understand that if we don't take care of our planet and that starts at home with our own yards, not just the backyard, the front yard too, if we don't do that, um, we risk our own demise. And, um, you know, many years ago, the UN came up with um, a list of ecosystem services, those services, direct and indirect, uh, that uh, a healthy environment provides us that we cannot live without. And, and pollination services are part of that. So um, I think we better get smart pretty fast. And yep. uh, I hope I can be part of that effort. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned so many different pollinators and, you know, something that always bothers me is in the gardening world is how quick people are to freak out about a caterpillar eating a plant. And they don't think, and a lot of these caterpillars right. are moths and they don't really think too forward that if I kill this caterpillar, or I spray BT, which is, you know, organic, right. it's still right. a pesticide is still going right. to kill this plant, this right. caterpillar. Sure. And you're, you're eliminating a pollinator as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, my message is um, for us uh, home gardeners, you know, um, pesticides should not be used in <laughs> landscape. I, I really mean that, um, that my book is dedicated to Rachel Carson, the author in the early 60s of Silent Spring. We still haven't learned that message. 
Um, it is easier for an, the average homeowner to pick up a pesticide at a big box store than it is for a licensed practitioner to use a pesticide, which is absolutely absurd. Um, but um, tolerating some damage and understand that it's really not damage in many cases. This is nature cycling. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, our our moths and our, our uh, butterflies or caterpillars eat leaves of plants uh, that are called larval host plants. It's absolutely essential to having more <laughs> right. uh, moths and butterflies. And, you know, and there are many more moths, by the way, in, uh, in North America than there are butterflies. And they, many of them are very good pollinators. And, and um, what we forget too, animal pollinators are not only providing pollination services and giving us some beauty in our landscapes. They're also a protein meal for other creatures. They're part of food webs that are interconnected. You know, everything kind of in our ecosystems are interconnected and they're really important for that purpose as well. So um, if we just go easier and we realize that um, organic does not mean benign, Uh, and that really making um, rational decisions in context about applying anything um, and, you know, we've got some really bad pests. I, I get it. And we've got some really bad, you know, diseases. I, I, I get it. But um, unfortunately, uh, in general, there's not much of a thought process in terms of um, dealing with um, pests and problems in landscapes. And, you know, we can start reducing problems by, be- by buying healthy plant stock, and planting it correctly, right plant in the right place. This goes a long way to keeping plants healthy. Um, and uh, it's, you know, a rule that's often broken. Yep. Um, and also planting native plants um, that attract natural enemies, those beneficial insects that help to keep pest populations down. And so a lot of those are going to be small flowered native plants that provide uh, pollen for things like say lady beetles. Um, so one, one plant that's in bloom in my garden now, and you know, it was like uh, 30 some degrees here last night. <laughs> oh my. So, I, I, I'm not sure what season I'm in, but um, my Zizia uh, after my, my heart leaf golden Alexander's is, is in bloom. And I know exactly what it's doing. It's, you know, feeding some of these, um, you know, natural enemies that if they've warmed up enough to get out, well, it was warmer earlier in the week. But um, so really thinking a little bit more with nature as opposed to killing things, you know, uh, Vol- Voltaire had a saying that I think he ripped off of someone from a previous century. Um, Perfect is the enemy of, uh, of the good. Right. And so, um, yeah, I really believe that. I think we, you know, we have to appreciate um, what nature needs to do to exist. And um, perfection is not a great way to approach gardening. Right. So you mentioned earlier about, you know, children educating the parents and and just general society having a basic understanding of what needs to be done. Um, But in regards to acting on it, it's a lot harder in the long run because of a variety of factors. But I think your book does a good job of trying to outline some of those steps and where to begin. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Like, sure. You know, you're a beginner gardener coming at this. You know, where do you even start? Like, right. how do you choose, you know, foraging habitat for pollinators? What do you, what do you need to know? Sure. Sure. So, you know, simple steps um, are the key and not being afraid to make mistakes will help you quite a bit. So, you know, if you're, if you're really trying to, um, you know, kind of take that that first step in the water, that first toe in the water, you might think about replacing a little bit of your lawn. You know, I think that's a, a cultural impediment to healthy ecosystems, mm-hmm. having these big green lawns. So, um, and by the way, so my message is with, um, you know, reduce your lawn or eliminate it to the extent that you can. Um, keep what you really use and whatever you keep, manage it organically. Um, so that's my message on online, but, um, you know, one, one way to approach this is to just divvy out a section that's a manageable section and make it your pollinator Island, make it your, you know, experiment mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, a really good way to get to know uh, native plants is to actually go visit some native plant nurseries in, in your vicinity. If you can find them and talk to the folks that run them. 
Another good way to, to start learning is to um, join your local native plant society. There's usually some pretty good information on those websites. Um, sometimes they have some really good lists. Yes. But I'll tell you, you know, being a gardener is being a gardener, regardless of whether you're using natives or non-natives, the basic elements persist, which is understanding your site. How many hours of sun do you have per day um, or shade? You know, what is your soil like? Getting a soil test done and understanding, well, if you have very acidic soil, there are certain plants that will grow there. If you have very alkaline soils, other plants will prefer that. And, you know, it is an, it is an education that takes place over a lifetime, um, kind of learning these steps. Is your soil very fertile or is it really infertile? Well, either way, you've got options. <clears throat> you know, uh, folks that try to reinvent their soil are usually faced with a lifetime of disappointment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, temporary fix that, you know, might actually have some unintended negative consequences. So I really like to um, think about working with the native soil, but increasing the soil biology, the the micro and the macro organisms that are existing in our soils. Um, and typically we're thinking about, you know, um, in many cases, again, depending on your region and, uh, you know, your landscape, but compost, you know, active compost that helps to introduce some soil biology, decreasing soil disturbance, eliminating soil disturbance if you can. Yeah. Um, and thinking about how to be more gentle um, with your soil to um, make it healthier. But, um, you know, I, I really, you know, I think that a, a basic book on gardening is a really good tool. My, my book is, um, addresses a lot of the elements that go into um, creating a, a garden. Um, but I find that even with professionals, a lot of these steps of just analyzing your site and doing the soil test don't get done, which is, is astounding to me. Right. Um, so it's not just beginner gardeners. I mean, we just, we need to be thinking about gardens in a more, in a deeper way, in a more uh, careful way uh, to, uh, to have success. And um, so, you know, um, starting in containers, you know, planting some native plants in containers is a way to kind of get your feet wet and using some easy peasy plants that aren't mm -hmm. difficult to, uh, to grow, you know, if it's appropriate for your region, you're starting with a coneflower, an echinacea purpurea, easy peasy, very rewarding, long bloom, lots of pollinators. What's not to love with that? <laughs> <laughs> and and um, understanding that um, kind of mother nature knew what she was doing um, when she made these plants. And so really trying to favor straight species natives as opposed to hybridized freaks of uh, man-made creations. Um, for example, you know, if you're, if you're going to plant Echinacea purpurea, purple coneflower, it looks a certain way. It has lavender and a kind of leaf color and it has, uh, I don't know, they're kind of pinky lavender and it has a cone. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a garden center and you see one that's orange or black and, or one that has no cone, avoid it. Yes. <laughs> Follow nature's cues in terms of what plants should, should look like. Um, you know, if, uh, if you're buying a, you know, a shrub, say a, a common nine bark, which is a wonderful, wonderful plant. Um, you know, that plant in nature, it's green leaved. <laughs> it supports some feeding caterpillars, but you go to the garden center, they're all purple leaved or chartreuse leaved. Well, avoid them. Seek out the ones that really uh, have the same same or similar elements as the native species. Now, you know, a lot of the work that Dr. Doug Tallamy has done um, on woody plants is, is shown that some, sometimes it matters a lot and sometimes it matters less in terms of how close a cultivar, cultivated plant is from the species. But I think just to simplify it, if we work with mother nature, the plants that she's created, I, I think we're in a better place altogether instead of making a lot of guesses. Right. Um, you know, and, and you know, cultivars have their place. Um, if you really want a Joe Pye weed, eutrochium, um, uh, but you can't, you don't have room for a six to eight foot tall plant. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is a reality, but they're such great pollinator plants. So maybe you compromise on that one. You get a little Joe or a baby Joe, which are both very good plants and um, attract a lot of creatures. So, you know, um, disease considerations might point you toward a, a cultivar, but I think we don't use enough straight species plants. I think we don't use enough regionally grown plants um, in, our, in our landscapes. Um, and I, I hope that will change over time. 
Yes, yes. Well, one aspect you talk about is is biodiversity and not just, I mean, you're introducing a couple plants, but I think some people tend to, well, I bought this milkweed and I'm good for monarchs and right. that's it. Uh, right. When really in reality, okay, that's the larval host plant, but you really need to be providing nectar and, you know, right. all these other things to consider in, I mean, maybe touch a little bit about that on like why biodiversity is so vital sure. in a pollinator garden. Sure. Well, in any garden, I mean, honestly. So let's just 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 uh, realize that that climate change is threatening biodiversity in such a significant way. And if um, if we're paying attention to the headlines, we see that um, invertebrates and vertebrate species decline is extreme, and it's getting worse. So how do we get our hands around that? Well, we can start planting more diversely to support a greater diversity of creatures. So it all goes hand in hand. But, you know, um, again, Mother Nature's kind of figured it out. And um, with pollinators and plants, um, there are um, suites of floral traits, groups of floral traits that tend to uh, attract and support different types of pollinators. And we, we call these pollination syndromes or evolutionary relationships. And so um, these things include like flower color and flower structure, scent or lack thereof, uh, the presence of um, nectar or presence of pollen or, you know, um, nectar guides, these runways that are visible to pollinators, um, like striping. Sometimes we can see these on, on plants as humans. Sometimes they're invisible to humans. Um, an example would be a uh, spring beauty. Claytonia virginica has these little stripes on the, on the uh, flower petals that are the mm -hmm. runways to the pollinators. So like I said, um, there are different pollination syndromes for different types of pollinators. And these are not cast in stone. These are general guidelines. So you may have noticed that um, hummingbirds really favor red tubular flowers. Yeah. <laughs> That's an evolutionary relationship. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's thought that perhaps that has occurred because uh, bees um, do not see red very well. They, they really can't distinguish the color red. They see on a UV spectrum. They really can't distinguish the color red from green. So if you've got a flower, a red flower with a green foliage around it, really hard for a bee to see that. But a hummingbird, it's thought, perhaps has evolved to use that particular coloration because there's less competition. So there are all these like very minute things that are probably going on that we don't even realize yet about these evolutionary connections between pollinators and plants. And so um, one study that I like to mention, which is, I think, really interesting, um, it was a study done out of NC State in 2015 on um, Rhododendron clendulaceum, or uh, flame azalea, which is more of a you know southern species of mm -hmm. native deciduous azalea. And um, they found that the best pollinator of um, that plant were swallowtail butterflies. Hmm. So think about this. So butterflies really don't have a lot of contact with pollen, right? And they don't have fuzzy bodies to catch a lot of pollen on their bodies. So we've always kind of dismissed them as incidental pollinators, not that important. They're not as good as bees. But here we have an example that was studied in 2015 of a rare case of what's called wing pollination. And the swallowtails have this behavior where they flap their wings when, the, when they're nectaring hmm. and release a lot of the pollen on the, on the flowers onto their bodies and they go onto the next flower and the next plant. So we didn't even know about that evolutionary interaction until 2015. Wow. Yeah. And I'll <laughs> bet you there are thousands of yeah. examples like that we just haven't discovered yet. You know, we now know that about 25% of all of our native bees are specialists. They specialize in the pollen of particular plants. Sometimes it's just one plant. Um, sometimes it's, you know, um, a group uh, within a, a genus. But um, even with um, the pollinators that may not specialize in, in the pollen of certain plants, they may have preferences for certain plants, or they may prefer a different type of nectar. So there, there are all these things going on that, you know, dumb human beings, I mean, we just don't know, but they yeah. know. Yeah. We, yeah. They, they know. So if we can respect those 
evolutionary connections and try to work with nature. And, um, you know, in my book, I've got those pollination syndromes defined and you can, you know, read about that, you know, kind of what bees are looking for and what wasps are looking for and pollinating flies and so on and so on. Then we realize, oh my gosh, I can support a lot of creatures in my landscape. Now, most of us can support um, at least, you know, uh, a number of individuals in each category, perhaps not bats, unless you're in the, the Southwest, right? Because yeah. we, we've got only three bat species in North America that are, that are pollinators and they're in the, they're in the Southwest. And they're really important for plants like um, the Sororo cactus, the organ pipe cactus, the agave plant. They're very, very important, but you know, here I am in New York. I, there are no bat <laughs> pollinators in New York. Right, right. Right. But m- most of us can attract and support bees that are pollinators, flies that are poll- wasps, butterflies, moths, um, beetles, and so on. And so if we plant diversely for these different groups, um, we can really be um, impactful in terms of improving the ecological health of our landscapes. So one, one tip I have in my book is, uh, is uh, to achieve floral balance. We need to plant diversely for different types of pollinators, and we also need to plant sufficiently. So there's some research um, that was done out of the University of California uh, Berkeley Bee Lab that found that one square meter patch of a species of plant is kind of an ideal target for pollinators. Now that can be hard to plant one square yard, right. Mm -hmm. um, Per species in a small landscape and have a lot of diversity. So you have to compromise. You have to compromise and uh, you know, kind of do what you can, but also we can think about how um, specifically like butterflies and bees tend to um, go nectaring. They, when they go foraging, they are looking for one species of plant on each foraging mission. They may go out for dozens of foraging missions during the course of the day. And so meadows work really well for them because they've got a repetition of bloom. So especially in deer world, where most of America, um, instead of having like a deer buffet, um, you know, we can do kind of a meadowscape arrangement where we can have this more erratic, but a a repetition of bloom deter the deer from some of the plants they might otherwise devastate, but also deliver um, the sufficiency of uh, the particular species of plant for the pollinators. So, you know, we've got some tools in the toolkit in terms of, you know, how we can do this. And, you know, sadly, if we only plant plants that are deer, uh, I, I can't say the word proof. No, there's no. Yeah, no. Right. <laughs> That's gone. Resistant. My deer teach me that all the time. They're, yeah, I deer resistant. Um, you know, we, we really lose a lot of health of, uh, of our ecosystem. So um, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Um, you know, getting clever about putting things that deer hate in front of things that they like, you know, like mountain mints that they really dislike in front of things that are more uh, tasty, but it's, it's, this is an enormous challenge. Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I bet over here all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And, and another thing to really consider is we, we have to think about having a succession of bloom throughout the entire growing season. So depending on where you live, um, in North America, you know, that may be from like where I am from early spring through late fall, or it may be year round or some combination of something. Um, But really thinking about those, the ends of, of those time periods, uh, you know, beginning and end, I should say. So the really early spring, making sure that there's something there in, in, in where I live, it's, it's red maples, it's sugar maples, it's um, uh, pussy willows to the early blooming, even some of the wind pollinated uh, plants that deliver um, a lot of pollen, but low quality pollen can be useful to certain pollinators. And then really thinking um, quite hard about what you have in your landscape at the end of the season, because you want any pollinators that are going to uh, overwinter and most of them don't, but you know, you want them to go well-fed and healthy Mm -hmm. um, for the overwinter nap. So the asters, the goldenrod and and so on. Um, And then, you know, avoiding gaps in between and having, I, I tell clients, even in the smallest landscape, I want to see at least three different types of flowering plants in bloom at any given time throughout the entire growing season. That's a minimum. Um, and if you do a lot more than that, even better. Right. 
Right. Yeah, it's definitely more of a ecosystem viewpoint versus a human centric viewpoint. Like mm -hmm. I like mm -hmm. this and it only blooms right. for two weeks right. versus you've got to think about, okay, how am I going to provide food for six months of the right. year? <laughs> right. I mean, we're, we're sharing the planet <laughs> yeah. and, um, and we depend on it. And so it really behooves us to, um, to act like it. I often in my talks, I have this slide that shows um, a pyramid with man on the top and then a circle with man as part of that circle. And you know which one I point out mm -hmm. as being uh, <laughs> the way that we need to reframe our thinking about, you know, um, our, our ecosystems that are our landscape. So, you know, whether you want one or not, if you've got a home and a yard, you've got an ecosystem and right. it needs your help. Right, right. So someone learns all of this, they look at your plant list, they're like, I'm going to go feed the pollinators. Right. Now, now the problem is, okay, sourcing plants. Now, you know, I'm a huge <laughs> state of Texas. We have a million eco regions and, right. and right. I can go to my native plant nursery and I can find Texas natives, but right. are they East Texas natives? Are they Central right. Texas natives? Right. What are natives, you know? And, sure. and so then that, once I eliminate, you know, my Central Texas stuff, that's not going to work for my garden. Um, right. Then I have like, you know, a handful of plants and I ha oh, that's a huge hurdle. And I don't know, I, you don't obviously probably have this answer, but how do you address that? And maybe it's better in your area. You have more native plants and I'm sure you have a lot of resources because you've been doing this for so long, but you know, a gardener in Arkansas or Kansas or wherever, how, how, how can they work on diversifying some of their native right. plants. Sure. Well, so you're absolutely right with uh, particularly with larger states and it doesn't necessarily have to be a large state, but you know, there are different ecoregions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look at California. I mean, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, the California Native Plant Society is unbelievably robust and has so many chapters. Texas does too, by the way. And I, yes. I have a relative, I have a niece who's um, in uh, Houston. Mm -hmm. And so guess what she got for her birthday? She got, <laughs> she got, <laughs> got a book on regional native plants uh, for that area and uh, some wildflower guides and guides to butterflies and bees and so on. So regional, you know, when people talk about native plants, I always say this is best used with a geographic qualifier, even better if you can get down to the, the eco-region level. So, you know, um, in many states, there are several chapters of native plant uh, societies, and you can join the one that obviously makes sense for your region, but that's not always the case. Um, I'm trying to help a student of mine who lives um, outside of Memphis. Now, she mm -hmm. actually took a class with me at the New York Botanical Garden online this year and is trying to put together a native plant garden. And I mean, we're having a heck of a time finding a place to buy native plants anywhere near Memphis. I mean, mm. it's crazy. So thinking outside the box, uh, this time of year in the spring, there are a lot of native plant sales that are hosted by conservation organizations, botanical gardens, and so on. And so that's where a lot of these plants are going to be coming from. Um, and, uh, you know, parts of the country, it's still really hard. Yeah. I mean, but I have to tell you, I mean, I'm, I have to travel quite a bit myself to source a lot of the plants that I need. And I, I wish I could just buy things that were, you know, <laughs> completely grown, collected from seed locally, uh, grown locally, um, but it's not a possibility now. It, right. It's it's getting better, but it's just not possible. Okay. Okay. I, I was hoping that maybe you had a better, no. better solution up there. Okay. No. okay. But, but one, one promising sign is um, some growers uh, have um, coordinated with conservation organizations in the Northeast to start wild collecting seed, you know, from their local ecoregion and growing, growing seed out specifically as plugs, you know, for perennials right. um, and um, selling them um, that way through conservation organizations and um, just hugely popular, hugely popular. So I, I, I have hope that that will be the case. But, you know, if you can find a native nursery that is growing woodies, trees and shrubs from seed, my God, bless them. You know, I mean, go honor them. Yes. <laughs> Buy from them. Thank them for doing this hard work, which is takes so long. Um, but, you know, uh, it's not so easy. Here in New York, the New York DEC has an annual seedling sale 
Um, I'm going to be getting my uh, delivery or actually it won't be, I've got to pick it up uh, in a couple of weeks, but they're selling most of these uh, plants from seed and they're just little babies, you know, and some species that are awfully hard to come by like Prunus virginiana, choke cherry. I mean, oh, wow virtually impossible to find the darn thing. Um, although I've, I've now found it twice this year. So if I keep looking hard enough, <laughs> but um, you know, and having some patience um, to let those grow out. So, you know, um, is a good idea, but um, I think we're going to see more and more of this um, local ecotype kind of growing. Um, I hope so. But um, being in the, in the business of, of growing native plants um, is a tough one. Uh, yes. Margins are thin. It's a lot of labor. Um, and I really uh, encourage folks to, uh, you know, buy from these folks that are working so hard to do this, who really care about the environment and, and be willing to pay more. Yeah. You know, for God's sake, do not buy your native plants from Home Depot or, oh Lowe, my. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you can avoid it, please, maybe that's the only place you can find, but try to not do that. Um, who knows where these things are coming from or how they're treated. And um, the business practices are somewhat suspect in terms of how the vendors are treated. So, you know, really seek out the, the folks that are doing this well and working their butts off to get you native plants. Yeah. Well, I wanted to touch on something I heard you mention in a podcast, which I loved because it's something that drives me nuts is when people call, you know, an aggressive native plant mm. and invasive and, yeah. and, or the term native invasive just kind of drives me insane because yeah. I think it deters people from yeah. wanting to plant some native plants. Yeah, it's true. And, um, and, and like I said, a lot of common names of plants have weed in them that are native, which is not helpful. Um, and some of our best plants like Joe pie weed, you know, but um, yeah. So an invasive plant, you know, I mean, excuse me, a native plant is one that has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years in a particular, you know, ecosystem and an eco region. Um, and that, that term is best used with a geographic qualifier. So, you know, just because a plant is native in one part of the country doesn't make it native to another. <laughs> so it, it, it's very important to understand that. Um, and sometimes plants that are native in one region can be invasive in another region. And an example is cup plant, which is perfectly good prairie plant, Sylphium perfoliatum out in the Midwest, but it's on the invasive species list here in New York. Um, so invasive plants are ones that do not belong in the ecosystem in question and um, cause harm, economic harm, harm to human health, or ecological harm, which is really how I come at it. Um, and that's what an invasive plant is. So a plant that is native to the ecosystem in question is never invasive, ever, ever, ever. It can be a aggressive. It can, you can call it frisky. That's my preferred term, but is never invasive. And unfortunately, people are constantly using this word invasive um, to describe aggressive natives. I, I had a client who should know better who just asked me about, you know, I heard this one, it's a ground covering native. This is Packer aria, golden ragwort. I said, if you want to weed, pull some up <laughs> because this thing is doing a, a great function um, covering the soil and preventing uh, weeds from pairing. So it's aggressive. It is not invasive. So this, this is a real problem. And I even hear professionals calling native plants invasive, and that's just the wrong terminology. You need to know how a plant grows before you ever put it in the ground. If it is rhizomatous, if it is stoloniferous, you know you've got a runner on your hands. Yep. And kind of term them between the clumpers and the runners. But then you may have a clumper that's a prolific reseeder. One that is, is like that here in, in uh, where I am in the Northeast is Lobelia syphilitica. It looks like such an innocent plant, a clumping, <laughs> pretty plant. You see the basil rosette, you know, in the early spring, it looks great. And it's going to send up its shoot with its beautiful flower stalk, you know, late in the summer. It's just a prolific reseeder. I find it everywhere in my garden. Um, it's not a runner. It's a prolific reseeder. And, and, it, and that's perfectly fine for me. If I don't want it in a particular place, I usually what I do is I just dig up the volunteers and put them in a pot, give them away. Mm -hmm. um, but um, understanding whether a plant is kind of a clumper or a runner, and that's my dumbed down terminology, is really important to matching like with like. So you don't want to put, um, you know, say a trillium, a gentle <laughs> yeah, trillium yeah. that takes a long time to mature next to a golden ragwort. It's not going to yeah. work out well. <laughs> yeah. 
So placing plants with um, equally competitive partners is, is a very smart way to garden and you don't get disappointed. But, you know, um, I've heard people call scarlet bee ball monardididyma uh, invasive. Of course, it's not invasive where it's native uh, in that particular ecoregion. It's, you know, it's stoloniferous. Yeah. So that's what it does. Yeah. So we, we've got to really understand how plants grow. And this is just, you know, basic plant knowledge. Yeah. Um, and you'll find out you'll, you'll, you know, and, and there are some cultivars of um, plants that are quite aggressive. For example, uh, Physostesia virginiana, obedient plant, which is not obedient. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it's obedient when you bend its uh, stem and it, you know, it stays put, but it's a very aggressive plant. So, and, and, you know, some people in a small garden may not be able to use that, right. But just spreading everywhere. But guess what? It has a really long bloom. It's just mm -hmm. great for pollinators and it's deer resistant. So I'm okay with using um, a cultivar like Ms. Manners or Pink Manners when you've got something like that. And you really want to incorporate that plant in your garden. So you've got to make these decisions about where you compromise and where you don't. Right. So maybe if you've explained all of this, maybe you could talk a little bit about your own garden, how you garden yourself. I don't know if maybe you're, you're like the, the cobbler and the shoemaker and you can't shoe your, you know, keep your family in shoes because you're too busy making shoes for everybody else. If you're too busy making gardens for other people and, and consulting, but maybe just talk a little bit about your own garden and how you have adapted it over the years for pollinators. Well, when I first moved into my home, um, there were a couple Christmas trees that had been planted in the back, a bunch of uh, non-native uh, daylilies. Christmas trees weren't native either, by the way. <laughs> um, and a lot, of, a lot of lawn. I mean, there wasn't really, uh, there wasn't one mountain laurel. That was kind of good news. There wasn't much here. And so, uh, oh, and Japanese barberry, which is an invasive, that was a hedge, a privet hedge, you know, pre-existing stuff like that. So, you know, over the years, um, all those bad boys are kind of getting the deep six, right? They're all, they're all gone. And, you know, um, before my native conversion, I had a couple indulgences, which I, I think are okay. You know, I, I love Inchianthus um, and it's a very well-behaved non-native. And I have one from, you know, years and years and years ago where I put it in. And I think that, you know, having some non-natives that are well-behaved, that's okay. But I haven't bought a non-native plant, you know, probably in a very long time. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, like most of us, um, I have been uh, the victim of climate change, uh, bad weather, mm -hmm. and have had some big trees come down and fences smushed and, you know, all sorts of things happen. Um, so, you know, my garden has evolved as um, the sun levels have changed, the moisture levels and so on. And um, I do a lot of experimenting in my landscape, particularly with cultivars that I'm not sure about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I've, I've had some rude awakenings about things, um, but I, you know, I feel better when, when I trial a plant myself before using it for a, uh, for a client. So an example would be um, uh, viburnum. Uh, well, well, they've changed the name, but let's just call it cranberry vi bush viburnum, uh, viburnum, uh, what used to be viburnum trilobum, um, which is now opulus variety americanum. So, you know, with our native viburnums, we need um, uh, at least two genetically different plants for cross-pollination. They're typically not you know, particularly self-fertile and people mm -hmm. constantly wonder why in the world they're not getting fruit on their viburnums. <laughs> so, you know, American cranberry bush is a rather large shrub and it can be tough to get two in. So I thought, well, let me try this, this one, uh, Bailey's compact, see how it goes. Planted it last year and uh, didn't see a damn flower on it, <laughs> which of course meant no cross-pollination. And, and then I started doing a little digging and found on a couple websites, including Chicago Botanic Garden, that it's, it rarely flowers or barely flowers. You oh, know? wow. It's just like a green meatball. Yeah. So what's the point of that? Yeah. <laughs> so that got dug up. But, you know, that's why we have to be a little careful with cultivars, because um, some of them are, are higher functioning than others. And um, we can't assume just because, you know, a plant has a native plant name that it's, you know, it's a cultivar that's going to, 
it's going to be ecologically useful. So, so I, I kind of experiment stuff like that. And, and um, you know, I have my share of successes and failures like any gardener. And um, I am, you know, I always seem to um, be better at giving advice than taking it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, one adage I like to use is you don't know a plant until you've killed it. I've killed my fair share. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some plants are very flexible about where they can be planted and some are not. And you learn. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's, uh, that's my experience. So I, you know, what I'd really like to do is to move and have a brand new landscape that's 10 times the size of mine and start all over again. Yeah. And then you could experiment even more and try all sorts of different stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, I'd like to close out if you have any, you know, final highlights of the book that you think people should just really hone in on that when they're opening the book, flipping through what they should focus on and, you know, where they can find the book to begin with. Right. Well, you know, as they say, sold everywhere, books are sold. So, um, you know, your independent bookseller probably hasn't had such a great year with the pandemic. So um, be great to ask them um, if they could get you a copy if they don't have it in stock. But, um, you know, it's available everywhere. And um, um, I have a section on my website, ecobeneficial.com. I have a section on the Pollinator Victory Garden with a lot of supplemental material and a lot of information about the book. So you can kind of look through that and um, see what uh, what might be helpful in, in your particular situation. But I will say this about, um, and I've got plant lists, there are many of them, but I will say this about plant lists. I do not suggest relying on one plant list. I think that's always a bad idea. I think really cross-referencing, doing a little digging is a great idea. So, um, you know, that would be my, my, one of my parting suggestions is um, dig a little, dig yeah. a little. well thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book and i appreciate the book itself like you've done such an amazing job and i think it's such a good primer for for people interested in pollinator gardens and and wanting to branch out and understand a little bit about more about you know why they're doing this why why get Mm -hmm. into it and 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 why they should do it so well great well thank you so much missy it's been fun talking with you and uh yeah Hope we'll connect again in the future, maybe even in person. Yes, I would love that. If, someday if we get to break out from COVID and go yes. on speaking and meet people tours again. So. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. That's it for my conversation with Kim. And I hope she inspired you to do more for pollinators and to broaden your knowledge on how to support them in your own landscapes. You can find the show notes for the podcast at thegardenpathpodcast.com and the podcast is on Instagram at thegardenpathpodcast. That's it for this season, and I'll talk to you all again in September. Happy gardening.